Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. With me this week will be Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. Sorry for the delay in getting out this new podcast. It's been a crazy start to the semester for me. Um, but with this podcast, Tom, Trevor, and I are going to get back together again. Uh, we've recorded a few different conversations where we talk about the development of uh, early Christian Christology. So we're going to start thinking about uh, the various figures and controversies which played a role in helping Christians think through exactly what it means to say uh, that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? That this this human who walked on the earth that we know from the Gospels, how is Jesus also the God of the Old Testament? Um, to use Robert Jensen's phrase, uh, God is whoever, having uh, rescued Israel from Egypt, rose Jesus from the dead, right? So God is the same person who did both of these things. Um, and so we want to talk through a little bit exactly how early Christians understood the, the divine nature of Jesus and the human nature of Jesus as they reflected on the scriptures. Um, so I will intersperse these conversations with other interviews with scholars. Um, so uh, depending on what kind of stuff you're interested in, you might not want to listen to all of them, I guess. Um, but I think they're all really good conversations. So I'm look forward. I'm looking forward to having a, a conversation out soon with Ross McCullough uh, about the nature of uh, freedom and how that uh, plays into the question of evil. So we do have sort of typical scholarly conversations as well as uh, just reading through early Christian sources, thinking through um, where, the, where the sort of great teachings of the church come from. Um, so I also wanted to say, uh, give a shout out to Reuben Aston. Uh, he messaged us on Facebook and told us that he decided to study theology and philosophy um, and so uh, I just was really excited to hear that and wanted to wish him uh, all the best as he starts down his own uh, more academic study of these things. So I'm always glad to hear um I'm always glad to hear ways in which we're you know, able to encourage people in their faith and in their academic lives, and so that's great to hear. So congrats, uh, Ruben, and good luck, uh, I think, at the University of Cambridge, if I'm looking at this correctly. Um, so today, our first conversation on Christology, where we look uh, at some early thinkers, um, Apollinaris of Laodicea, and... Um, and Theodore of Mopsuestia. So we're going to look at just some of these very early people uh, before we get into Nestorius and Cyril and some of the the more uh, the more well known thinkers. Thanks for listening. Please do uh, find us at a history of Christian theology dot com um, as well as our Facebook page and our Twitter page. That I did. Got it. I did that independent study where I read that whole book. And with and had to do a chapter summary. It's a Eleanor Stump's book. Uh, okay. And I had to do a chapter summary, and then I had like an hour long discussion every single time I turned one of these in with the professor who was helping me do the study. And that's kind of where I learned everything. And he was Catholic. And yeah, I hadn't heard of it until then either. This idea that. Um, sort of God is in some sense responsible for the good we do because God gave us a will, which is just an appetite for the good. And so through forming us, if you talk about formal causes, cause the good things we do, but um, in terms of efficient cause, isn't like at all interrupting the actual, you might say physical causal chain. If yeah. we were to make it 
put it in contemporary terms. But yeah. Well, but that's that's exactly it, right? I mean, you you have to have an Aristotelian separation of the 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 so the word cause whatever that means which i mean every time you know it's like the like i, I guess you you probably know this as well as i do but like i i was sort of i've you know we, we we read a lot from like scottish common language sort of uh philosophy or sort of where it's like we want to base it on sort of intuitions and the way that we speak um but every time you dig deep enough into a thing you end up sort of changing what you mean and you go well actually what I mean by cause is not what you think uh, when you use the word uh, cause. And so now I have to like sort of uh, uh, tinker with uh, the language a little bit so that we could say that God is a cause in the way that you just said, the volitional, the source of the volition itself, uh, but not the efficient, not the one creating the bad action. And so it's like, okay. And, and then it's like, I find that kind of persuasive. But it's, of course, a far cry from what anyone actually means when they say cause. <laughs> yeah, and that's why when you talk about, if you try to take Aquinas and situate him amongst the uh, libertarian thinkers alive today, it doesn't quite fit neatly because he's actually totally fine with you because your will is just an appetite for the good. And if your intellect presents something as the only way to do something then you would have never done otherwise. He's totally fine with denying uh, the principle of alternative possibilities, which is like the way free will is often talked about by libertarians who, who are incompatibilists. So he's weird, because, but he does think free will is incompatible with causal determinism, which would be efficient causes like all the way down in his wording. So yeah, you have to like, like be careful when you talk about it. But it, that's why Aquinas, he gets labeled in contemporary speech a source incompatibilist instead of a leeway incompatibilist. Um, and that's that's like my extent of my knowledge. At least that is a very popular, I should say it's a popular interpretation of him because I know he does talk about the liberatum arbit arbitratum liberata i forget the latin you know the liberty of the will he does yeah. talk about yeah. your ability to liberum arbitrium yeah liberatum. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. he mentions it and so some people yeah. say no he is just a straightforward pap person principal alternative possibilities person but there's like a lot of like scholarship that's been like no 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 because no, look at all these instances he regards as free where he says like you only you you only would do one thing so we didn't have to understand what he's saying here and it's he thinks it's he thinks there are some actions where you do have the la the liver whatever uh yeah, yeah there are some instances where where you have it but it's not um sufficient for freedom something like that yeah so yeah. if well, i'm getting this right sufficient but not necessary sorry it, it would be sufficient if you had a, yeah. an instance where you could do otherwise that would be good enough but it it's unnecessary for freedom. So Aquinas, not a libertarian. <laughs> no, he is a libertarian, but he's he not, is a libertarian. He's not a leeway li libertarian. Yeah, because all you need to be to be a libertarian is you have to be an incompatibilist who thinks you have free will. And so he, he, he hits those two boxes. He just doesn't think the PAP is necessary for freedom. I, I was making a bad joke. 
Trevor. Oh. I was just making like so not you know I was just like politically not a libertarian. It was oh, sorry. That's I, right. I'm no. all like in I, philosophy mode right now. Well, that's that was for me the joke, right? That was that was <laughs> couldn't that was even for me the joke. Especially if anybody even... else were to hear this, ninety four percent of the people listening might assume that a libertarian is somebody yes. who thinks that the government needs to keep their hands out of our business. Aquinas <laughs> is against driver's licenses. <laughs> <laughs> and taxation well, is theft, right? <laughs> yeah. So, Tom, I was telling uh, Trevor that I'm interviewing a guy next – well, like in like two weeks um, who wrote a book. It's called Freedom what, – what did I say? Freedom and – no, Freedom and Sin, Evil in a World Created by God. Uh, but it's an interesting it's he's a philo- uh, he's like a philosopher PhD from Yale um, and but he 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 wrote a book about like how is it possible that we could be free to do evil but God is still in some sense uh, the cause of us doing good um, oh. and and so like what does it mean for us to be free and God for be the cause of our bad actions or the co- the cause of our good actions but not our <clears throat> bad actions and it's all predicated on this thing that I was telling Trevor. I was like, I, I find his argument persuasive in a, in a certain sense, except for, I realized like, I, I never had heard anything like what he's presenting um, until I was doing my PhD program. And I encountered a, a philosopher theologian called Herbert McCabe, um, who's a, a, a Thomist basically of a certain sort. But it's this idea that, um, like our willing and God's willing are not incompatible with each other. So if God wills it, we can also will it. It's still be a real will. Um, and, uh, but, but then if that's the case, you know, it seems to be strange for us to say that God, like, and how are we then going to absolve God from willing our evil actions? Um, and, and so it, he calls it a non-competitive account. That's also asymmetrical. Um, so it's huh. asymmetrical in the sense that god can will the good things but not the bad we are still free but god still determines it uh, but the only way that it's possible is if you think that god's willing and our willing are not in competition with one another and i've never i like i had never heard this um like in when i was doing philosophy or in like the sort of analytic kind of mode or even when i was among the calvinists we just sort of assumed that if we said god uh god causes something then that was in some way like would overdetermine our causing um and then we felt like puppets and like that was just like that intuition was just everywhere so we were trying to work ourselves out of that problem uh and and so now this guy so then aquinas i guess is what we're finding out just comes along and says well those two things are uh you know incommensurate you know god is not a being among beings god is not a cause among causes um and so his willing is not in competition with your willing but what i and so i was telling this to trevor and i was like i was like i i mean that's yeah sure it seems like an elegant solution in a certain sense uh but i was like i've never heard anyone who had that uh like premise uh that that our you know that god is not a being among beings and so his willing is just different than our willing um and so do you know what could you flesh out a little bit what he means by so his willing is not in competition with our willing what does he mean by that? well so what he ends up meaning by it as trevor was and so we were kind of halfway into this when you came in oh sorry Uh, sorry 
no, no, no. It's fine. I told Trevor before we started. I was like, I meant to. I meant to this for, to be for both of us, but um, uh, but my but, computer um, took a crap for some reason. So yeah. Well, so what he means is like that. God is the. So it, it requires a few other things. One of which is understanding that God's like sort of the formal cause versus an efficient cause. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he makes a distinction between like sort of, uh, you know, God is the reason that there is being and willing. Um, and so there's a sense in which he causes all wills. Um, and he's also the, the source of sort of the, the final cause. So like what is good? Um, so God determines what is good in some sense, or God is, you know, responsible for our causing what is good. So what, what is an evil action? Well, an evil action is a deficiency. It's not, it's a, it's a turn to nothingness. It's a turning away. So we can still be responsible and the efficient cause of evil, um, because we are defecting, um, from the good that was already determined by God. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and so he, so yeah, so God can be uh, straightforwardly responsible for, and, and, and in some sense, uh, providentially responsible for goodness and for our existence, but not for our evil actions. Interesting. And I was, I was telling Trevor, I was like, well, this is like, I mean, yeah, it's okay. Perfect. Sounds great. Um, but, but it's, it also, it denies kind of like, it, it does sort of run up against like what do we think we mean by freedom and it's sort of like most people who think about sort of libertarian freedom as like freedom to do otherwise and so it's in some sense it seems strange to call god free um and you know you have some problems with what does it mean what does freedom mean with respect to god um and it, it just well it requires that you think that ev- you know you take the classical position about what evil is um as a privation of the good um you know which not everyone accepts i mean there's you know there are other sorts of things but i was like and also and then trevor said well it's just thomas which is kind of like so when i started reading his book i was like well i've heard this before um and i just it also made me wonder why is it that most calvinists don't seem to have this in mind because it could solve a lot of their problems too because it seems like they think that our wills are in competition with god and that's why they you know like it's like I, you know that was where i was kind of like i don't why why don't more people talk this way <laughs> yeah so he is just kind of espousing aquinas's view as far as i can tell I'm, i mean i'm like i don't know 70 pages in or something um <clears throat> like yeah he i so i'm reading the overview of his book right now which is real brief but he has to be departing at least from the interpretation of Aquinas I'm familiar with, but that by no means is like the only, because he does say he's a compatibilist. So I'm, I'm reading this now, but he, but he's an indeterminist. Yeah. It, that, which is a very small subsection, like most, obviously most compatibilists are trying to argue that free will is compatible with determinism though the problem of indeterminism has been talked about a lot as well because uh, indeterminism seems to also negate free will so uh, because then it doesn't seem like your will is the sufficient cause of your actions or something like that if it's literally chancy you'd want whatever cognitive process needs to happen to always cause the same action. You wouldn't want it to be a chance whether that action occurred. Um, So 
basically if your if your actions are dice rolls it's it doesn't seem free either it just seems lucky that you ever do anything you do so right. there's a way in which people have been trying to make indeterminism um compatible with free will as well but <laughs> i but aquinas's view i would think already handles this because it's a sourcehood view. So you just need to be the ultimate cause of your action. In, a, in some sense, all your actions, you're sort of like the un, unmoved mover with regards to actions, kind of, not really, but kind of, um, because you sort of, you, you are the, the only reason it happened. But I'm wondering, I'm wondering what, yeah, so this is really weird. So he must be denying he must think that okay so he's trying to say that it's it's compatible with the fact that some of our actions are determined but not all of them right. so yeah so he's okay with it he's okay with calling it determined aquinas i don't even think thinks it's determined it's just foreknown like the way a, a someone who builds a house will know what it will look like in the future uh through formal cut because they drip the blueprints um that and the fact that everything's supposed to be sort of eternally present to god is how god's supposed to know but i don't i don't I, i'm pretty sure aquinas wouldn't say it's determined now maybe he's gonna say um timelessly spilt milk is worth crying over the same way <laughs> milk spilt in the past is worth is not worth crying over yeah. or something so maybe he's yeah. gonna call it determined i'm not sure this is interesting i don't know i'm kind of curious to know what is why he calls it determined just based on this little blip that i'm reading on on barnes and noble's website well <laughs> and i I was t Tom. I was telling Trevor, uh, it would have been another fun one for you all to be on. Uh, Erdman's only sent me one copy of the book, um, and so I, I may, I could reach out and ask for a digital copy, but we've already set the interview for August second, um, so it doesn't, you know, there's not a lot of time. Um, but um, I bet, they, I bet they would give me a digital copy actually. But, um, but. Um, it's also a fifty dollar book, so I don't, you know, I don't know how many they want to give us, um, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, if they're willing, I might be willing to give it a shot. I mean, I can always wing it. I didn't read the David Bentley Hart's book, um, but by the way, dude, had you interviewed Stanley Hauerwas and didn't tell us? I thought I did tell you, but maybe no. <laughs> I would have said, dude, do everything in your power to get me on the show. Chad, there are uh, 11 theologians that I'm even aware of it, that they exist. And if we ever have them on the show, you have to let me know. Uh, <laughs> and Hauerwas is one of them. I, well, I got I, chewed out by a friend of mine yesterday after he saw your tweet. He texted me. He's like, why in the heck didn't you tell me you had Hauerwas on the show? And I was like, I didn't know. Chad didn't tell me. <laughs> and he goes, you're absolved then, te absolvo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very good. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, to be fair, I I actually scheduled with him a couple different times. Um, so my grandfather died, um, and we were supposed to, like the day of the funeral was when I was supposed to interview him. 
Um, and so it was, um, so anyway, so we had to reschedule a few times and then he went to France for something. I'm not sure. Um, it was, I will say it would have been hard for us to have multiple people talking to him. Like, I don't know if you listened to it, but it's shorter, it's shorter. And, uh, he, I, I don't know, he's 87, 88. Like, I mean, he's, you know, so he speaks very slowly, um and the technology stuff it's like i called him on a landline phone i think he actually called in to the chat on his phone um so it was like it was a little slow and a little stilted because he's just not like you know technologically savvy oh yeah don't forget is this being recorded (laughs) uh yeah it is i don't think i'll have this yeah i just sat record so i didn't forget gotcha Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, but yeah, but all all that to say, uh, I I maybe I could edit some of that out. But yeah, I should have I should have let you know. Uh, it was fun. I mean, I don't you know I I like actually this is kind of funny. So speaking of people that we've had on the show, um, I've only ever been rejected for an inter- interview one time, um, and it was just recently. Uh, James James K A Smith has a new book coming out. Uh-huh. Uh, with uh, with Baker and I work with Baker sometimes, so I was like, "Hey, uh, can I interview James K. Smith?" And I got an email from his agent that said, "I'm sorry, he does not have time for this." <laughs> wow! So, so wow. I mean, like I've I've had you know we've had Howard Ross, we've had Hart, we've had lots of other people. Um and James K. Smith, that is I'm 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 getting above my station. <laughs> Did you ever find out why we were included on that tweet? No. <laughs> what tweet? Oh man, now I'm behind. Well, you oh, you were in the group that. chat. You responded, you said now we're big time. Oh, then I've just forgotten what this is about. <laughs> oh, it's just, he. This is just some guy that I don't even really know that well. I actually didn't know him at all. I just had to look him up. But he's like trying to gather PhD students, trying to hand out like money from the Italian government to study religion broadly. And he he reached out to us, to Yale Divinity School, Harvard Divinity School, Duke Divinity, um, and like asking all four of us, like th- those three, and then me, like, do I know PhD students? Uh, who yeah. want to like, or yeah, to like get the word out. Like, yeah. I'm equivalent to Harvard Divinity School in terms of like the kind of students that I can send his way. Yeah, Harvard, <laughs> Yale, and Duke, and the history of Christian theology. <laughs> oh my god, it just seems incommensurate. Like, there's there's uh, one. It's like one of those games where you're like, which of these does not yeah. fit. <laughs> <laughs> It was wow. yeah. I, I I was kind of like proud, but I was like, this has got to be an Italian who like types something in and mistype something. <laughs> I don't know, because he doesn't follow me either. That's the other funny thing. But there's no other Twitter handle like ours. Huh? Yeah, maybe he just wrote in Christian history and it popped up. <laughs> yeah. He's like, that seems official. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so uh anyway um i haven't yeah like i don't know other big name theologians you know we've sort of joked about having nt Wright on i guess he was on the your friend's podcast um my friend uh oh something in the raw yeah yeah he was on preston's preston's podcast pretty big 
It, I don't know how. Oh, it's huge. Far, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's huge. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all I know is he had a conference <laughs> at our church, and it was filled. The, I mean, our church sanctuary, fifteen hundred people, middle of the week, and he asked how many people were from Boise. And I, I couldn't tell you how many people raised their hand, but it was not noticeable. So 1,500 people flew in. Well, almost 1,500 people flew in for the conference. Yeah. At like 100 bucks a pop on the tickets for the conference, too, or something. You know, so. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, it's we, huge. Are, we are not drawing like that. <laughs> <laughs> we could have the first History of Christian Theology Conference in uh, at Calvary Chapel, Boise. <laughs> Yeah, man, you guys are like the hub of of uh, podcasts. There, <laughs> we've been. <laughs> we're like, hey, yeah, we got a couple of podcasts here. We got we got a uh, uh, theology in the raw with Preston Sprinkle and history of Christian <laughs> theology <laughs> with, with three Chad, guys Tom, no one's ever heard of. <laughs> yeah. With Chad, with Chad, Tom, and Trevor. However, Tom and Trevor only show up once a year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh. Which we, I, we actually, we have a, uh, we have a student intern too. I think you mentioned that. That's right. What? Yeah, yeah. So Grant Bellchamber uh, couldn't couldn't come on today, but we'll get him on one of these. Uh, he's one of my students at SLU. SLU's paying him uh, to be my student intern for the summer and the fall. <laughs> wow. Okay. What? So what is he doing for us? Uh, he, we've got a website now, a history of Christian theology.com oh, yeah. that's got yep. all the transcripts and other stuff. And he's going to be doing that. He's trying to, um, well, I'm going to have him read a book or two, uh, along with me. And so I'm going to try to like help him sort of like, you know, think through like, okay, how do you summarize a, an argument of a book? How do you, you know, ask a few questions about a book, um, and just sort of get him used to kind of like the. The sort of academic part of uh, like a book review, basically, yeah. um, and so like for him, it's like learning. So what do I? What what we get out of it is someone's going to fill up a website, do some social media, uh, do some stuff like that, and then what he'll get out of it is sort of exposure to kind of you know academic publishing and like you know what yeah what does it mean to kind of figure out where a where an author is kind of. Uh, what they're trying to do with a with a more academic title cool cool yeah i saw that website it's looking slick it's good yeah i mean trevor and i are a little too prominent in it i would say (laughs) 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 just kidding it's i mean we are like i said we come on once a year i wouldn't expect us to we're even beyond it which we're not so (laughs) <laughs> well i so if you want to send me some headshots i'll have grant make put you on there as well you need you should be on there i did so my sister who does marketing she was the one who was sort of like you know basically you do a lot of the interviews now you do a lot of the work like you should also use this as like your personal page you do uh, everything you do everything there is no yeah i am not i, I was just making a joke because we have not okay. been we have not been available <laughs> so yeah so anyway it wasn't meant to insult you uh but i should have you guys out there as part, part of the the team but oh you know we're not insulted i was just making a making a crack yeah hey, i wouldn't <laughs> you need like a yeah you need like a occasional co-hosts uh <laughs> like part i, of I the think page. i would be 
I might, I, I still don't think I'd even be insulted if we had been recording as much as we did at the start of the podcast. Um, I, I just think then it'd be funny probably, but, <laughs> but we haven't been present. So I cannot complain. I still want to try to make this more consistent if possible, but I also just get slammed. I'm slammed right now. This week has been crazy. I have to read, I had to read half of Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace by this afternoon. And for I started what? it like a week and a half ago. For, that for is what? the hardest. What's that? For what? Just because I'm meeting with a friend and we're going to discuss it. And by the oh. way, I didn't get anywhere near there. I'm only at page 270. It's the hardest thing I've ever read, hands down. It's so hard to read. Have you read it, Chad? I, same with you. I've read like 200 pages and then I just threw it. I was like, all right, I'm not doing this. <laughs> <laughs> Trevor, have you ever tried to tackle it? Now you told me about, you know, Mr. Mr. Foster Wallace like a long time ago, and I you showed me like he had modal logic in one of his books. He has modal logic in this. I haven't got there yet, but I've seen it in the footnotes. And I was like, what? So I, and of course he comes up when people talk about philosophy and like famous authors. So I, yeah. I I know nothing about like what he thinks, but I have a friend who's really like has an English degree, is really into literature, who I've been talking to lately. He likes David Foster Wallace for like how he describes what it's like to be a young man and stuff, but he actually kind of hates the uh, the I'm smarter than everyone feel, I guess, of his books. That's all he told me. He's like, he's like that. I, I kind of, he comes off as pretentious to me, and I was like, oh, okay, so... He's like, yeah, you don't have to read them. I'm like, okay. So I don't, no one's told me like, you have to read them. Unlike Dostoevsky, where everyone's like, you have to read this. Yeah. So I haven't read it. I haven't taken the time. Yeah, he does come up. I mean, I've, I've read almost, I said, I was going to say, I've read all, I, probably every single essay he's ever written. Um, but uh, that, that I could find. There was like a summer where that was all I wanted to do. Um, I can't stand to try to read his literature, <laughs> but I do actually like his essays. Oh, his essays are incredible. I've read two collections of his essays, loved almost every essay he wrote. I read one collection of his short stories, and at best, I would say I was mixed. Like, I yeah. liked half of the short stories, hated half of them. Uh, Infinite Jest, there are sections that I have marked up that are just incredible, and, but the bulk of it is, what are you talking about? And this is so boring. Like, <laughs> that's like the bulk of it so far. Um, the guy I'm meeting with today, he's he's well ahead of me. And he told me that he's finally really digging it. So it's like, I'm like, okay, is this one of those like runner's high nonsense <laughs> kinds of things where it's like, but, I, you know, and to, to, your, to your friend's criticism, uh, he definitely, I, I guess, it, it's funny, it never occurred to me that he's he's telling everybody he's smarter than everybody in the room, but I could just be wrong, but it just, he is smarter than everybody else in the room. <laughs> like, he might be the smartest human I've ever read. Like, I mean, he has a, I mean, what, bachelor's degree in math and in philosophy, a master's degree something. in, in yeah. philosophy, and then, of course, in English as well, master's in English, taught at the at the uh you know taught was a professor of you know of lit and all that kind of stuff 
and then just has written so incredibly. And those, the, his essays, they are, whoo. Well, my big thing is he is just incredibly insightful, I think, into the human psyche. I mean, I, I think he's, in, in a world where it seems to me <laughs> that people who are experts at everything and constantly telling all of their opinions about the human condition, but all of their opinions are so far off the mark. I think <laughs> David Foster Wallace is one of those guys who I feel like when I read his stuff, he's really hitting the mark in terms of what's going on in people. And I'm getting that even a little bit in infinite jest. He had a chapter where he just ranted in infinite jest and man, it just seemed to me that he really hit the mark in terms of what's going on in people's minds, just like he does in so many of his essays. Yeah. After yeah, the he essays, seems, then. I mean, it seems. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll see if I can find one on like his sort of commentary on entertainment and entertainment culture is part of what makes him so brilliant. Like he's also, I mean, I think I think there's a kind of timeless character to it, but he's also very prescient in his kind of criticisms of the entertainment world that we're in, and you know what what has, you know. Uh, yeah, I don't know, like, to some extent, like, what we've, um, like, how, how we're, like, cynicism, basically, is part of what he's trying to handle, and so how, how entertainment culture generates cynicism and constant parody, and why that leads to never having a genuine feeling. Yeah. Well, and I think people have described, though, I don't know if there's a term for this, where he's, like, post-postmodern, because postmodern, mm -hmm. You know, postmodernism, at least in literature, is cynical, ironic, almost impossible to find a a, a, a like just a hint of sincerity, and he's yeah. kind of spinning that on its head. So, at least from a literary yeah. standpoint, that's kind of the the he. It's, but at the same time, he's not skipping over the cynicism and the irony. He's not embracing sentimentality. Of course, he's it's the opposite. Instead, he's going through the cynicism and the irony to try to get to the bottom and find one sincerely held belief or thought or, you know, you name it. I mean, it'd be easy to read infinite jest and see it as pure irony, but you can tell he's not trying to do that. He's, he's going through it. It seems. Hmm. And then he, I mean, the hard part is, is he ends by committing suicide. Um, so, I mean, so like some, some of it is there's, you know, it's, it's one of those figures in my mind, like when, when I think through like Dietrich Bonhoeffer or something, or um, uh, I don't, I was, I mean, not that Bonhoeffer committed suicide, but like his whole life is interesting because of the way that it ends. And so yeah. you're trying to understand all the work to some extent in my, at least in my mind, when I was reading Bonhoeffer, I was always curious how you got to the like what what were the ideas that led him to his final position on on hitler and then ultimately his his death and there's a sense yeah. in which like for wallace you're fascinated because he seems to diagnose the situation that a lot of us are raised in. he's a little older than we are but he's a gen xer uh well it's tom's age i mean i'm i think i'm either a geriatric millennial or a gen Xer. He, he's older than um, me he died in 46 and i'm 45 and he died in 08 so Okay, so yeah, so he's yeah, so he's even, but he's he's, but anyway, still Gen Gen X, but yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and so he he sort of understands a lot of that cynicism and irony and and stuff like that that we were like kind of raised in or I was raised in, um, and then 
but but what to do with that um and then so because his life it, now it seems like he was uh bipolar or or at least he was on medication for for uh, mental illness and he was off his medication when he died um also in one of his most famous essay well, it was one of his most famous things is this talk called this is water and sort of famously in the middle of it he says why why does every person who commits suicide shoot themselves in the head uh because the mind is a terrible uh is is a is a great servant, but a terrible master. Um, and, and so everybody wants to kill, uh, the, the mind. And so they yeah. shoot themselves in the head. Yeah. Well, and in, in infinite jest, infinite jest is kind of obsessed with suicide. So yeah. I hadn't seen that much of that. I read a couple of his short stories that dealt with that, but none of his essays. And it's like front and center in infinite jest. Um, also, oh, that was that was actually the main criticism my friend had that I forgot about was he was really he really hated reading something that like um, focused so much on suicide I guess he just found it very depressing and impossible yeah. to read it uh, Wallace's essays I don't ever remember coming across one that really dealt with it suicide but infinite jest has a lot on it in 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 uh yeah and it's really of course it, it's very dark obviously but it's handled very ironically you know one of the main character or the main character i can't tell like one of the main characters i think or three of the main characters in the book their dad killed himself and this is a topic of frequent conversation in the book but he killed himself <laughs> by sticking his head in, or by he, by sticking his head in a microwave oven. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god which then, which then becomes and and that comes up several times and this is kind of the way he writes but you just sit there and go what like how's that even possible and then finally about 150 pages in the book somebody says how is that possible i thought it wasn't even supposed to come on if it's not latched and then you go another 100 pages before they describe how he did it which is he sawed a hole <laughs> in the middle of the microwave door and then wrap tinfoil around his neck. <laughs> I mean, so it's like on the one hand, <clears throat> yeah, he's, he's writing about it, but that irony is there very thickly, you know? And it's like this very dark, it's very dark. I mean, I just described the funny parts of it, but it's also very, you know, there's some very, really horrible parts in kind of that description of, of the dad. So it's like this mix of bitter irony and dark misery, you know? So, uh, but yeah, and I, I did read, by the way, Chad, I, I read an interview with his wife and he mm. wasn't really off his meds. What had happened was he wanted to go off this medication because it, he felt that it was like, it had, it had got his mind you know stable but he was worried that it was going to do some physical damage to him so his doctor took him off it tried to put him on some others and that led to a period leading up to his death of severe severe um mental distress verging on psychosis and his wife like described a lot of it she said he went back on the medication but she said it just seemed to not do anything after that uh so it was a really bad kind of kind of period of time leading up to it but she said as bad as it was she didn't actually think he was going to kill himself she said that was a complete shock mm -hmm. so yeah Whew. 
Dang. Yeah. Yep. Well. So on that happy note. <laughs> but Trevor, uh, I guess I'll end with this. Read some of his essays. Start with a supposedly funny, fun thing I'll never do again. <laughs> That's a pretty famous one. A supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. All right, I'll write that down. I'll write it in my notes. To read. Um so did uh okay we can go two ways on this uh did we read much from apollinaris or uh theodore mopsuestia yes i read them both i okay. got to 116 okay uh, Which that's so, like three pages from the end i think or four yeah yeah it's not I, a whole lot so um yeah i which i know a bit about apollinaris already or at, like, at least i think isn't this the same person who ended up being deemed a heretic? Both of them were, yeah. Oh, both of them were? Okay. Because William Lane Craig is like a Neo-Apollinarian or whatever. So Really? When did he do that? This has always been his Christological view as far as I know. Like since, well, at least when I listened to his podcast in 2014 or so whatever. So William Lane Craig's a heretic? I guess he just doesn't think it's heresy. He just disagrees that it counts. Well, as all heretics think that their heresy, <laughs> heresy isn't heresy. Uh, but if something's condemned as a heresy in what three or uh, when is Apollinarianism deemed a heresy? What Chalced, uh, uh, or uh, Constantinople? Nople, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why I really want to talk. Hey, hold on. Say the name of that thing again. I'm sorry, I missed it. Oh, a supposedly talk. fun thing I'll okay. never do again. Supposedly fun thing I will never do again. Uh, never do again. Okay, also, so I don't get caught in this like I do every time. I'm going to pee before we start talking. Be right back. I think you should leave that in, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> I think I do like, I think the, I think people listening would love the banter in front. I'm a yeah. fan of including the banter. I think they would love it. Um, okay. We just have to leave out. Or if you, I actually would rather leave that in than cut it out. But you, <laughs> but <clears throat> just just, uh, just an FYI. You want but me to leave I, in all this stuff about suicide? The banter about Aquinas, okay. about Wallace, for sure. About suicide, all that? Yeah. 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 Okay. That's my opinion. I I mean, we don't, you don't have to, but I mean, it's, it's an unpleasant well, thing to think about, but it's a topic of, yeah, you know, what, yeah. One thing that, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's been fascinating. Like the podcast has gone through many iterations sort of, but, um, you know, like my guests will sometimes ask like, who is my audience? Well, when we started, our audience was I, – I, I jokingly say the only reason anyone ever listened was because Tom was a pastor at a really big Calvary Chapel church in Idaho. Um, so we had a ready-made set of listeners because people love Tom, uh, and, and you know he just had an audience already at his church. And but then I so then I was like, well, you know, I think we thought of it as like going one step beyond what you might learn on a Sunday morning. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's, it, so it's like it's a little bit more technical than what you'd get at Sunday school or from a sermon, but not, you know, not crazy. And then like at some point when I started doing interviews, it started getting to <laughs> it started getting to where it was like, I mean, these are 
you know, little, little like more in-depth scholarly interviews. Like this is something like you might ask at a graduate seminar um, on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and so my, the conversations kind of go all over the map, but I do get people who regularly will uh, message us on Twitter or Facebook. They're like, Hey, we missed Tom and Trevor. Are you guys still going to record? Um, so there are, there are people who kind of come from that, uh, angle that do like our banter or just do like us talking through them together. And then I, I do know that there are other like more scholarly people who just want to hear, you know, so, you know, oh, well, I just want to hear what someone's take is on, uh, yeah. With, so wisdom and both, And then they can just skip yeah. like, so the more scholarly people can skip our talk, <clears throat> our banter. Definitely. Uh, can, what's that? I was going to say, definitely, that's already a model. Like, I think of Joe Rogan, for example. Most people don't listen to, like, all of it. It would be way too hard. You just skip the people you don't care about. Or if you're just an MMA fan, like, when I used to used to listen to it a lot more, but now it's on Spotify. I hate the Spotify app. But, like, yeah. I would, I just would go to the MMA episodes. And really? Just, like, pretty much, because when I first I skip got... All the... I've always skipped all the MMA episodes. I want to find the social commentary guys. <laughs> yeah, which makes sense. Like, and I would listen to like a couple non-MMA, but like I used to just mostly skip well, the ones I liked. So yeah, yeah, I think it's a good model. Like in but, the sense that it's been done before, we could definitely do it. Yeah, for sure. By the way, I, but I'm a huge MMA fan. I just did not care about what those guys had to say. <laughs> I love the inside baseball. Not every guest was great, but like yeah. I loved hearing about like complaining about the gloves and like better glove technology and like mm. whether or not you can get a good gable grip on a UFC glove and stuff. And yeah, anyway, gotcha. I, huh. I, I love huh. that stuff. Yeah, so, so um, we read uh, we read Apollinaris of Laodicea. Laodicea. Um, and then uh, we also read a little bit from Theodore of Mopsuestia. Both of them are sort of Syrian, Asian, Middle Eastern uh, thinkers. Um, and they both kind of, to some extent, they represent almost like two, you could almost say like two different poles on the, um, on how to understand uh, uh, the humanity and the divinity of Christ, right? Um, and and so the reason that we chose to read these two thinkers uh, is, like I say, they kind of lay the groundwork. So these guys, um, Apollinaris dies in 392, um, so so kind of mid to late fourth century. What what we come to know as Orthodox Christology is not really articulated in any kind of final. Uh, or definitive fashion until the definition of Chalcedon, the Acts of Chalcedon, which isn't technically a council, or it's not it's not a creed, I'm sorry, it is a council. Um, it's not a creed in the same way that the, the Nicene Creed is. It's, it's an explanation of what was meant, supposedly, in the Nicene Creed. Um, but, but there's not kind of like a definitive way where people think about, okay, what does it mean for Christ to have the divine stuff and the human stuff in one entity, <laughs> one person. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, but yeah, so we read these two people. Now, both of these people that we read have been condemned as heretics. Uh, so whenever you're reading people who have been condemned as heretics, it's always hard to find stuff from them. So we're reading fragments uh, from their more doctrinal works. 
uh, we do actually have a fair bit of their biblical interpretation as an in, sort of an interesting footnote uh, of to history. Um, Apollinaris and Theodore of Mopsuestia uh, both sort of remain in kind of biblical interpretation manuals long into the medieval period. Um, and, and so even though some of their ideas were rejected, uh, there are some of their biblical commentaries, you know, will continue to be used by Orthodox uh, writers and authors. Um, and, and, uh, and actually just a, a sort of interesting Augustinian footnote, P uh, Pelagius is a student of Theodore of Mopsuestia. Um, and so there's a connection between the Pelagian controversy um, and, um, and Theodore of Mopsuestia. But I'll leave that to, you know, again, sort of interesting footnotes about how these people interacted. These guys, again, are both from Syria, both from the far eastern side of the Mediterranean. Uh, but the stuff that they debate uh, sort of becomes central in the conversation throughout the Mediterranean about the nature of how uh, one can talk about uh, the person of Jesus Christ, the word made flesh as God and human. By the way, I would just kind of as just like also kind of I guess a categorization kind of thing. I think, and Chad, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but you could kind of fairly say that when it comes to basic Christology, that the two, you could kind of break up all, all heretical Christologies that have uh, kind of popped up, or I should say that were prevalent at least in the fifth century church, fourth and fifth century church, you can kind of categorize them all into two categories, I would think. One would be monophysitism of some kind or meophysitism or whatever. And then the other might be a kind like Nestor Nestorianism, right? And they both kind of fall into one of these categories. Like Apollinaris is a monophysite of a certain ilk. And then Theodore of Mopsuesta, I think he's a he was an influencer of Nestorius himself, right? Like he kind of helped kind of hone Nestorius's view and Nestorian Christianity although it was condemned to heresy it maintained a lot of followers and was essentially kind of the the foundation of uh you know kind of eastern Christian when I say eastern I mean beyond Far orthodoxy eastern. like beyond the orthodox world you start moving over into modern day Iran and into India you have this Nestorian Correct. Christianity that that persevered. You also have some monophysite Christianity that persevered all the way up to the modern day. So if this is a, like, these are big things, whereas Arianism died out uh, and has made various kind of uh, comebacks in certain senses. Uh, monophysitism and Nestorianism persisted through to the present day. What's, um, what's Nestorianism? Boy. Well, okay. Come that's, can I just say that's the million dollar question because Every time I read anything, like when I read Theodore of Mopsuesta and when I've read Nestorianism, I can barely see a difference between it and the definition of Chalcedon. Like, yeah. barely, which, anyway, Chad, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, so um, a couple things. Um, Tom's right. So all of, like, it, it is, so one thing I, I guess before I start, like, parsing some of this, um like there's a book by Rowan Williams on Arius and and what Rowan Williams what he tried to do was he tried to be as fair and charitable as possible to Arius now why would anyone want to do that 
Well, because Rowan Williams is an interesting and careful historical scholar as well as a theologian, but he did it so that they could figure out, okay, what was actually at stake um, for Arius and then for the pro-Nicenes? So like what – you know, we need to know what Arius thought um, because we need to figure out, okay, well, why did Basil respond to you know people who were uh, of that – sort of frame of mind or why does augustine respond to people of that frame of mind so we need to know what they thought um in order to figure out why someone responded to them the way that they did so as a historical enterprise um it is interesting to see what moves theodore is making what moves uh, apollinaris is making uh because they become part of the conversation and even though they don't mean to they are like some of the stuff that they, the questions that they asked become determinative for what becomes like orthodox standard Christian thinking. So in some sense, it's because Apollinaris said Jesus didn't have a, a human mind. He only had a divine mind um, that that the orthodox said, well, wait a minute, we shouldn't say that. That sounds like he's not fully human. Um, and so it's it's because we have Apollinaris who raises a question um, that that we that, you know that we can even understand what so-called orthodox thinkers were after. Um, so being good historians, it's to sort of say, okay, let's think about what they were on about um, because that will help us understand the people that responded to them. Now, as far as Nestorius, it is very hard. It's always hard to reconstruct these guys because once they get condemned, they start to they don't want to uh, the, the the orthodox don't want their thought and their ideas to be passed down so they try to get rid of them um and we should also make like a, and, and this is a broad this is sort of a broad set of distinctions but in in the fifth century so 1500 years ago uh was one of the first great splits uh around chalcedon um and so what we consider today to be sort of eastern orthodoxy you know greek orthodoxy russian orthodoxy these sorts of things uh that's kind that's a kind of sometimes that's just called eastern orthodoxy um but what tom was describing is sometimes called the church of the east um and so that's like far eastern <laughs> and they would be uh this either miaphysite which means essentially mixed uh nature um or monophysite of one nature um and and so there's um that's that's part of what's going on here is christ's nature as god and human how is it unified how is it one um and that will be a question uh like we'll see this even in in, in apollinaris he's going to say it's mixed right Ap apollinaris doesn't you know th that's like after chalcedon that's becomes nephos ne nefarious so you can't say uh that christ is a mixture um of humanity and divinity we want to say that he's properly human and properly divine uh unmixed um and 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 un uh unlike um fused um or something like that uh so it's like you know the or well fused but unmixed um not commingled um and and so you know so we'll see some of these things that will become forbidden after uh, orthodoxy, but yeah, so so it's not clear exactly where Nestorius, whether or not Nestorius had this kind of one nature thing or two natures, right? So sometimes actually his prosopic union seems to say that there are almost two people, 
um right so at some at some sense nestorius seems to start to say well, it looks like you're calling two christs there's the god christ and then there's the human christ and it's not really clear how they're unified as one kind of thing um and that will be cyril and the hypostatic union but but we're way before all that yeah so one thing i would one thing i would add there is you mentioned monophysite as the church of the east i don't know the whole breakdown but i do know there was a strong contingent of nestorian christianity in the east as well i was just recently listening to a podcast history of china podcast so shout out it's a really good podcast uh but they were talking about christianity in china and the uh the like the the earliest stuff not, i don't know if it's the earliest stuff that we have but but I think it was kind of like the second wave that entered China was all Nestorian Christianity. But yeah, Nestorian Christianity, the, the closest thing, I mean, again, I'm saying Nestorian, but I'm talking about Theodore of Mopsuestia because of course his influence on Nestorius. But when you read it, like reading it, it sounds very much like the Orthodox position that comes out at the definition of Chalcedon in 451. And you know, where, where it's like, you know, because the definition of Chalcedon is going to say Jesus is one, uh, one person with two natures. One, yeah. I think, I think they use hypostasis with yeah. two feces, right? With two feces. Yeah. <laughs> I say it kind of sounds like feces. Physis. <laughs> two natures, where we get the word physics. Yeah. And one is the God nature. One is the human nature. That is very much like what Theodore Mopsuestia was saying. The only thing I would say is, you're right, when when reading him and then subsequently Nestorius, it sounds like he's saying they're two distinct persons. But when I but that's what it sounds like. But then when you read what he says, it doesn't seem like he really, uh, really asserts that, um, which I found pretty interesting. So I, I don't know. That was just kind of it. Like what he asserts just sounds really similar to the Orthodox view, but it sounds like he's referring to two different persons, like the, the God person and the human person conjoined. But yeah. Well, and again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, we're sort of, I mean, from a historical standpoint, it can be helpful to say, well, what do these guys say from what we have uh, yes. before trying to condemn them? And, and you know, this is one of the things like if we're thinking about like what does it mean to be a, a, a sort of um, – an orthodox, a true, a pious, a good Christian, um, you know, you kind of want to know, okay, well, which guy, which guy, whose side should I be on? <laughs> um, and, you know, so to some extent, neither of these people, uh, but, uh, but also, yeah, it does depend. I think Tom's point's a fair one. And and I should say, I, I think I oversimplified by saying the Church of the East. That's quite right. I mean, there are Byzantine, right, Orthodox, like Roman Catholic people in the East. I mean, so there are people that are aligned with Rome now. Uh, there are, you know, there are Melkite Christians. There are, I mean, there are all different stripes of communities in the Middle East that have varying degrees of uh, connection to Nestorius or sort of contemporary orthodox christianity so yeah it does get really messy um and i don't i wouldn't be able to name all the variations within the middle east itself i'll be honest uh, reading both of these i have a hard time understanding the big deal so hopefully i can be the confused uh audience member i'll, I'll be 
a good substitute for the confused audience member. <laughs> and uh, I'm with you. I'm with I'm with you, Trevor. I have kind of a hard time seeing the big deal. And okay. here's the thing: reading up uh, um, Apollinarius, I actually thought he made really good points. I thought he was a really good. Uh, a really persuasive writer. Let me say it that way. Yeah. yeah, I thought his arguments were really good, and uh, so I mean, I don't want to. I'm not going to run in and just declare myself a heretic along with with uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, oh, William Lane story with William Lane oh, Craig. William. I'm not going to be an outright heretic like Craig. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I will say that yeah, I mean, he made some really interesting points and. You know, uh, as far as I can tell, essentially what he says in it is, look, with Jesus, you have a human body, just like everybody has a human body. And so he, he makes a tripartite distinction mm -hmm. of the human being. There's body, soul, and spirit. Now, I actually have always struggled to know what a Christian means when he makes a <laughs> distinction between soul and spirit. I understand yeah. what... I understand that distinction in the classical Greek sense, like Socrates' sense. That actually super easy to understand. Like Socrates, or I should say Plato recording Socrates, des describes soul, spirit, and body using the analogy of a uh, rider in a chariot, right? Where the body is like the chariot. The soul is the, is the human. He's the one piloting. He's the guy. And then the spirit are the horses. And the idea is that the spirit is the thing that, like a spirited person would be some like if I think of Winnie the Pooh, Tigger is spirited. He like jumps around. Eeyore is not spirited. So spirit is like strength and oomph and go getting and that kind of thing. But when a Christian makes the tripartite distinction, I, I have no idea what that distinction means. Um, and I welcome input on that. I've I've heard input. People have given me all sorts of explanations, and I just cannot concretely draw that distinction but apollinaris makes that distinction and he says jesus had basically a human body i can't remember what he says about the spirit if it's human or or god but the but rat but but here's the big thing jesus was not born with a with the like when 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 jesus was formed in the womb i should say in the womb whereas a normal human being has a rational soul put in there in them right the mind part kind of uh I'm seeing, I'm looking at Trevor here as he sits in front of uh, Descartes, uh, an image of <laughs> Descartes. So Descartes' go ghost in the machine, right? The, 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 the mind comes in. Jesus doesn't have that. Instead, where the human mind would go, the rational soul, uh, the divine spark, the logos comes in right there, right? So, um, yeah, I, I can see why that's troubling because that makes it sound like he's not fully human, uh, which I think Apollinaris kind of asserts at the end of his thing. He kind of says, look, what you have is neither human nor divine, really, or both. I don't know if he's saying it's neither or both. It's 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 like a little bit of it's a, it's like a third kind of thing. It's like its own kind of thing, which is really what monophysite means. It's like it's a. It's a one nature. It's its own thing. Nothing else is like it is essentially kind of what yeah. it is. And this is one of the kind of monophysite uh, beliefs. There are others. Like I know Eutychianism is another kind of monophysite where it's a little, and his is a little different. 
from my understanding. But but yeah, so it but some of his arguments were pretty compelling. I that's what I have a hard time not this is what I don't understand. Why wouldn't Christ be a human being? Because if all all we need is a body and a soul, I'm just going to be real simple. It's like you have a material and immaterial component, right? You're a hylomorphism of those two things, uh, supposedly, right? If that's the view, then why is that not, why is that definition not met just because the immaterial part happens to be the second person of the Trinity? That's what I have a hard time understanding. I think that's a good question. Chad? Well, um, so a couple, a couple things. I was trying to find where he says, uh, where Apollinaire says this. Um, but, um, so at some point he says, uh, uh, Apollinaire makes the claim that uh, it, it's a question of worship. Um, so at some point he sort of says we don't worship a human being, um, and and so there's a so what above like for in my mind like in order to situate this whole conversation, uh, we want to say that there's a a sense in which what they're trying to figure out is what does it mean when we worship Jesus Christ um, as God, um, and so we have this Jesus of Nazareth, this human born of a woman. Um, and we also would say it's not proper to worship a human. Uh, so we have to worship what is God. Okay, well, how is it that there's something that is human in Jesus Christ that we worship, but it has a relationship so that we can predicate of that one person worship to God and God's self that's somehow a separate thing, a separate being, a separate entity from what is human. So it's a question of worship, right? So all the way down – uh, every conversation about Christology that we will see for the next 100 years is a question of worship. Uh, they actually want to figure out what are we doing when we worship Jesus of, Na Jesus of Nazareth? Um, because if I said we, you know, we should worship Joseph of Arimathea, you would say, well, no, he's a human. Um, he may be the dad – or well, not of Arimathea, but Joseph the carpenter. Um, sorry. Uh, but if we say Joseph the dad of Jesus, well, we don't want to say we worship that Joseph because Joseph is just a human. Um, he may have some relationship and in, in sort of family – familial relationship to Jesus, but we don't worship humans. We worship the divine. We worship God. Um, and so there's always this question of, okay, how is that proper? There's going to be another thing that we need to keep in mind, but Tom had something to say. Yeah, well, I just found the passages, or many of the passages that speak to what you said and also to Trevor, what you asked. And so the first I'll point to is at the top of page 108. Okay. <clears throat> so some of these, now I'm skipping over stuff. So I'm just looking at highlighted passages. And I'm looking at them and going, is he, I'm, I'm confused where he was going with some of this. So, so hear me out and, and then we can talk about it afterwards. But at the top, he says, it is, it is inconceivable, second line, that the same person should be both God and an entire man. So here he's kind of denying the idea that, a, that the same person can be, can be fully man. That seems to be what he's disagreeing with. Rather, he exists in the singleness of an incarnate divine nature which is commingled with flesh with the result that worshipers bend their attention to God inseparable from his flesh and not to one who is worshiped and one who is not. So 
you have the divine nature uh, and it's what we worship and it is not an entire man it is commingled with that man but we want to make sure to be able to fully separate it because you can't worship the man uh down to 41 then at the bottom by this means the prophetic word reveals that he is co-essential with god not according to the flesh but according to the spirit which is united with the flesh behold the pre-existing equality of the same jesus christ with his father is subsequently acquired likeness to human beings so he's god and then subsequently he acquires a likeness to human beings and what more surely than this shows that he is not one together with another complete god together with a complete man 45 he is not a human being but is like a human being since he is not co-essential with humanity in his highest part now i want to skip over to page 110 or turn the page to, to note 89 because here i get a little confused because i think i understand everything he's just said is essentially jesus cannot be fully man because if he's fully man he's not worthy of worship he is fully god but that fully god has taken on the appearance or likeness of men but now this really delves into the area trevor that you asked about 89 listen to this if then a human being is made up of three parts then the Lord is also a human being. For the Lord surely is made up of three parts, spirit, soul, and body. But he is the heavenly human being and life-giving spirit. So Trevor, what you just said was, how is he not a human if he has this spiritual part? And then skip to 93. Uh, he cannot save the world while remaining a human being and being subject to the common destruction of humans. But neither are we saved by God, except as he is mingled with us in becoming flesh that is human. However, he is mingled with us, just as the gospel says. When he became flesh, then he tabernacled amongst us. Actually, I didn't need to read that. Sorry. I had it highlighted and thought it mattered. But So you skipped over 91, though, and I wasn't sure how to take this on the other hand. If we are made up of three parts, while well, he's made up of four, where I got really confused here, because I thought i understood the view and then i was like wait where's the fourth part he is not a human being but a man god and i no, was he, sure he's denying that god's made up of fourth of a fourth because what he's okay. essentially saying sorry i should have read that what he's essentially saying is is if if god the son if the if like he's i think almost kind of saying that like somebody like theodore of mopsuestia has something like this view that if god the son the god the second person of the trinity were to take a full humanity to himself, then that would mean he'd be adding three parts because a full human is three parts, which would then mean he has four. So he's essentially giving like a, a logical argument and saying, if that was the case, then he wouldn't actually be a man because a man only has three parts. He only has body, soul, and spirit. So he's then finishing the argument, as far as I can tell, by basically saying, listen to his hypothetical interlocutor, like Theodore Mopsuestia, uh, he's saying, listen, he has to be in some sense, uh, or he cannot be two different natures commingled, like, or like united in one thing. He has to be one part of this human concept because there's no way to even speak of him as being human if he's four, because then he's just not human. He's a God man. So 
So he's essentially saying, I'm kind of more like he's like he's essentially saying something of this. I'm actually more uh, consistent with the idea that Jesus is fully human than you, Theodore Mopsuestia. That's essentially what he's saying, because I recognize that that Jesus has three parts like every other human. You're creating this weird hybrid thing that is not like it's not even remotely human is what he's saying. I'll be like perfectly honest. I find this pretty convincing because that's because you like William Lane Craig, dude. No, (laughs) (laughs) it's because I view I think the other view is basically possession. Oh, like, yes. So I think, the, Chad, did not Apollinaris refer... He, one of our writers last night, Apollinaris or the, uh, Theodore, one of them referred, used the word possession. I can't remember who it was. It might have been Theodore, but he's using it in a positive sense. Do you guys right. do you remember? Yeah so, yeah, so a couple things. Um yeah, I mean, so Apollinaris is the sort of possession view, right? So it's the spirit that possesses the human body. So the one – that's what – and that's really – so Eutychianism was another phrase that Tom used early on. So Apollinaris sort of lays the seed for Eutychianism, which is – it's the mind of God that enters a human body. Uh, no, or the see, spirit. I, sorry, but I was viewing the other view as possession. Same. Because because this view to me seems like the mind just is the second person of the Trinity's mind. Yeah. One mind. The other kind of, view is two minds. Yeah. That are and, somehow the same person. I don't even get that part. But then it's basically because the, Christ's nature is like just controlling the other mind. By the way, Theodore, I just found it. Theodore admits that. Because Theodore has the other view. Theodore uh, has the other view that there are two. He admits it. Listen to this. Look at uh, page 118 in the second paragraph. He had an inclination beyond the ordinary toward nobler things. This is speaking of Jesus because of his union with God, the Logos, of which also he was deemed worthy by the foreknowledge of God, the Logos. Notice that's speaking of Jesus as a totally different person. Mm-hmm. Who united him to himself from above. Listen to this. So for all these reasons, he was immediately possessed together with judgment of a great hatred for evil. Ah, okay, never mind. I'm sorry. I saw that word and I used it, but I just realized he was using it in a different sense. That's probably, never mind. I take that back. But it still sounds like possession though, right? Like, Like the description of what happened. Because what Theodore is essentially saying is Jesus was a really good guy and he was like so awesome that God the Logos said here, took him up and said, I'm now going to join to you. So there's like two minds inhabiting one body. And yeah, so another point that I was going to have to make here, and and this is like, again, to, to sort of start as I be, as I be, to go back to what I began with, uh, one way in order to understand these people and understand what we're trying to un, uh, trying to kind of um, w- what produces uh, the idea of fully God, fully man that most Christ- you know, if you ask an average Christian, uh, you know, who, who is Jesus? What? Well, Jesus is the fully God, fully man. Right. I mean, they kind of know that phrase. Um, so how do we get there? Well. In order to like so 
and as far as I'm aware, Apollinaris actually maybe has a more platonic pedigree with this, but it's sort of interesting. Cyril of Alexandria, who comes later, and some of the later writers will talk about humanity as if in two parts. Um, that is body and soul. Um, and so the, the phrase spirit uh, sort of takes a back seat. Um, so ba so for, uh, for, for Cyril, we're basically body and soul. We're not body, soul, and spirit. Um, That's because Cyril is smart. And recognizes that nobody's yet come up with some kind of a definition yet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so at one, at one point, what we have to try to do to make sense of all these people is to recognize like, yeah, it's sort of, sort of like Apollinaris maybe has a better philosophical pedigree um, that he knows this platonic tradition better. There's a, and that's actually one criticism of Cyril um, is that Cyril is not as well educated as people claim. Um, and, and so, you know, so he may just be, he's a little more, off the cuff or kind of like common sense. Whereas Apollinaris has a little bit, it seems to have a better kind of like a more nuanced view of what it means to be human. And so he can make kind of, he can make this play where he could say, yeah, he's human like us with body and soul, but there's this other thing. <laughs> um, and so that's where we can find union um, in the, in the, the human part and the divine part is by nature of this, uh, by virtue of this spirit, I should say. Um, and that's, that's kind of Apollinaris's move. Now, like I said, it doesn't actually quite work for, uh, the later thinkers because they don't really think of us as tripartite in that way. Um, it's, right. it's actually more dipartite. Which, so <laughs> um, I should, just because his name's already been brought up, I should say, as far as I know, William Lane Craig's view is neo-Apollinarian because he he basically takes a um, a two-part view of a person and he just says, yeah, so the, the uh, immaterial part of Christ uh, was just the second person of the Trinity. And so in that way, it's <laughs> Apollinarian, but it's neo because he's not, he's not saying it's part of the immaterial part or anything like that he just says Ooh. it's the entire immaterial soul is is the well, person apollinaris his argument holds either way because so let's say it's a tripartite version of humans right. then we have three parts and then if you throw in the god part you now have four but let's say it's not tripartite. let's say it's dipartite same thing holds and that means a human is two parts you throw in God and you now have three parts. Either way, his argument is what you do you not have. In that case, you have somebody who's not a human. So he, what he's essentially saying is, is that his own view more accurately reflects humanity than does Theodore of Mopsuestia's view. I, I, again, I don't, he's not addressing Theodore specifically, but addressing that idea that God is uh, two diff distinct natures in one or that jesus is two distinct natures in one he's essentially saying no matter how you cut it when you do that you make him not a man and so he's essentially saying that he even though he feels comfortable rejecting the idea that jesus is a man in the traditional sense what he's essentially saying is but he's more of a man in my sense than in your sense see whereas i think still craig thinks we can just do full justice to both, which is why he, he obviously thinks it is still an orthodox way to talk about it because he thinks you can still call someone like that fully human. Anyway, that was that was all. Since 
and I only talk about Craig since we brought him up, but because uh, he happens <laughs> you to brought be him pro- up, Trevor. You well, brought him up. <laughs> yeah, he's well. He's probably one of the only like yeah, contemporary people yeah. who defends this. So it's yeah. Like, no, I, no, I love it. I love that you did. I, I'm glad. Yeah. I, I, I'm actually super intrigued and kind of want to read what he has to say on this subject, especially because I'm not gonna lie, Apollinaris. Like I was like, I'm, I'm like, I'm tracking, man. I'm kind of tracking with what you're saying. His his uh description, he gives a he's like, this isn't a perfect analogy. He's like, but you know the movie Avatar by was it James Cameron? Yep, yep. So that's sort of Christ, like the main character. I forget the name. Is like Jake or something. <laughs> yeah, I think it's Jake. Yeah, I think it's yeah, Jake the, Tully. Jake the, Tully. Okay, the main character is like one person, but has two natures: the Navi nature and the human nature. Uh, and so, in whatever way that that's similar, supposedly, like whatever Jake shares when Jake is either the Navi or the human, that's sort of like what's going on here. That was that's directly from William and Craig. That was like from his podcast. That was like the analogy game. <laughs> Dude, you might have just converted me to both Apollinarism and Apollinarism <laughs> and to Avatar loving Avatar. Because I hate that movie. But if it's if it's all supposed to be a picture of the union of the two natures of Christ, I need to write a letter to James Cameron and see if any if he had any intention in that. <laughs> so, uh, a couple a couple things here. Um, we, we, uh, traditionally, we've wanted to avoid the view of a tertium quid, a third thing. Um, yeah. And so, you know, so we want to avoid the possibility that whatever Jesus is is well, in some sense, not actually God, and in some sense, not actually human. It's just a third type of thing. Um, and there seems to be some fear that, um, you know, what, and, and actually even Apollinaire shares this, uh, intuition, right? I mean, that was like that when he said he, he becomes four kinds of things, that's essentially him saying he's a tertium quid. He's a fourth kind of thing. And we don't want to say that, um, the other kind of, um, like sort of general rule, uh, that comes up in a lot of these conversations comes from Gregory Nazianzen. What was not saved or what was not assumed cannot be saved. Yeah. Um, and so um, we want to say about Jesus's human nature that was identifiable with our human nature. So whatever it is for us to be human, uh, we need the second person of the Trinity to have assumed that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that, the, so that in some sense, Jesus can identify. And so, I think the fear on Apollinaris and my fear on the neo-Apollinarianism, so far as I understand it, is it feels like Jesus doesn't really exhaust what it means to be human, um, and and so in some sense is just a kind of, um, well, I've used this analogy before, but it, it's the my my uh, what is it? What Lady Gaga's meat suit. Um, it's just God. It's just God putting on a, a human meat suit, um, and and I would say, well, wait a minute. It's still Lady Gaga. Uh, <laughs> she just happens to have the the flesh of a pig, or a, I think it was a cow on her. Uh, I love and- these analogies today. We got Lady Gaga <laughs> is God in the flesh in her meat suit, and Jake Tully is God two natures. <laughs> This is awesome. So, this is highbrow Christology. Highbrow. <laughs> this is this is for all 
so like we were talking about earlier, this is all for all of you PhD students out there. <laughs> yeah, I, I, right. So I may, yeah, I'll lose all street cred now. Uh, <laughs> or actually, I'll gain street cred. Yeah, I'll about to you're going to gain cred. street cred. You're going to gain street yeah. cred. It's gonna, gonna lose... be it's gonna be the aristocracy that's gonna have a problem with you, you now. You'll lose ivory tower cred or uh, quad yeah. quad. That's part quad of the cred. university yeah. quad yeah. cred. All right. Anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's the fear, right? So you don't you don't want uh, you don't want Christ just joined to the to a part of the human, uh, but but whatever it is, fully human. So i mean to some extent this is what pushes us towards theodore of mopsuestia uh because theodore of mopsuestia wants to say that there is the fully human part and there is the fully divine part uh and that they almost seem like two separate things so there's like and and so it's ultimately uh the the characterization of nestorius was that he created two sons um so there wasn't some center of personality there wasn't some center of Per, like we want to say person not persons um you know so so jesus has divine dissociative identity disorder um, <laughs> um and and so you know so there is like you know jesus is two people no that's not right jesus is one um it's just a question of how um and and so so that's where so and and actually some of these statements from nestorius uh you know become part of the like there's almost a, the the heritage of Chalcedon depends on where you come from. Out of two natures is the phrase, um, and it's like that out of is doing all the work uh, because it's the question of what what does that mean, you know? And yeah. uh, and and so uh, it's like how do how do we find a way for there to be a single center of of personhood um, yeah. with these two uh human and divine natures and that's and anyway so that's the criticism of theodore is it doesn't seem like it holds can i go on a rant really quickly a tangential rant and you need to keep this in chad (laughs) (laughs) um because and trevor this is kind of to a point you made earlier you talked about how you're like what is the big deal It, it strikes me and and i've I've been bringing this up a lot. Uh, of course, we record about once a year as I brought this. So I've been bringing <laughs> this up a lot in our once a year recordings. Um, just how, one, we read all that work on the Trinity, defining the Trinity, which for me got super tedious because it was just the same thing over and over again. And it's always, it, it, it hasn't always bugged me, but as I've been reading through it, it was bugging me how the the center of Christian fighting was stuff that was definitional about the deity that is so hard to know how it all really played out. You know what I mean? Like these are really, really nuanced, very specific views that you just have to kind of step aside and go, I don't know. I mean, we're all trying to make sense out of the Bible and it just seems like it's weird that these are the things that we really drew lines in the sand on, right? Like, like no matter what, this is, this is the line in the sand, not, not things that, not things like, you know, should we live lives of sacrifice? Does it matter to lay your life down for a brother? Uh, Should we hold fast to the testimony of Jesus? Should we be giving to the poor? Right. It's just like, no, you have to make sure he's consubstantial 
and not something else. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm, don't get me wrong. I, I hold to the Nicene view. I actually still hold to the definition of Chalcedon in spite of everything I'm, I'm saying here. It's just so interesting that, that the, the things that we split hairs to the point of exile and killing people during this period in church history and the things which subsequently became definitional for being a Christian were these really highly high in the air, you know, ivory tower kind of arguments about the nature of the deity that there's no way we could all know very clearly. You know what I mean? Um, so, so it's just something, couple... wait, before you make your comment, I just want to, cause I, cause I was actually, you want, I want you to make your comment on that, but I do want to do my rant really quickly that I just said I was going to do, cause that wasn't it. My rant <laughs> is actually tangential. My rant is actually tangential. Um, I mentioned a little bit ago that at our church here in Boise, we had the uh, uh, Theology in the Raw conference that Preston Sprinkle put on here at, at my church at Calvary Chapel, Boise. It was a really great conference. Uh, the first speaker of the event was Francis Chan, who I, you know, I love Francis Chan, so I don't mean this as a as an attack on Francis Chan per se, but Francis Chan seems to be moving and I could be wrong on this, but he seems to be kind of moving towards Eastern Orthodoxy. And uh, the whole talk ended up being that he gave, which really surprised me. It was an argument for the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. That was the whole talk. <laughs> it's just like, okay, I don't really know what that has to do with almost anything we're talking about, but he, he was, he, he then went on to make an argument that I've heard before. And this one, this argument, though, drives me crazy. And this is my rant. The argument was that the church was just unified until 1054 when the great schism happened. <laughs> and that drives me crazy. And I know that that's a talking point. I've heard it from and, you know, I've heard it from Orthodox friends and Catholic friends. And I don't mean this as an attack on you guys per se, like I. I love orthodoxy and Catholicism in different ways, but it's an attack. Like, like the church was not unified from its founding through to 1054 when we finally had a split and then unified in the West until 1517 when Luther posted the 95 Theses. You have insane splitting of hairs over everything. And what happened is you had all sorts of splinter groups, which some of which came up when we were talking about earlier, the church in the East and all the different groups Chad starts bringing out, not to mention countless others that we brought up, the Donatists and the Arians and, and all of these. And there's going to be so many more. They're all breaking off. The difference between all of them and what happened in 1054 and 1517 is those groups were either persecuted out of existence or they just left and kind of went and did their own thing separate from, from everybody else. 1054, you have an even splitting of power. The Orthodox Church has power in the East. The Catholic Church has power in the West. 1517, the thing that made the Protestant Reformation survive was that you had power backing the Lutheran Church. Kings embraced Lutheranism, and then subsequently kings embraced Calvinism, and subsequently a king embraced Ang or created Anglicanism. So it's like this idea that the church just had this one clear, almost like... Uh, 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 utopian like unification all the way through 1054 is not true. It's a pipe dream. Anyway, sorry, that's my rant. End of rant. Chad, you can make your comment about what I was saying before. I apologize for that. Well, so um, 
F.C. Bowers, this famous German historian of the 19th century, the Bauer thesis is a diversity of Christianities from the beginning. So the Bauer thesis is that like so I was talking about Syria. Both these guys that we read came from modern day Syria, Israel, um, that area. Bauer's thesis is that Christianity just was different in North Africa, in Carthage. Christianity just was different in Gaul. Christianity just was different in Syria and Alexandria. Now, the question, the the sort of orthodox response to Bauer is how different? <laughs> um, or if there are these diverse centers, what does that mean for some kind of a unity? And so, I mean, but this is just always the question, right? So the, like what what's wrong about Francis Chan's position, if, the, if his position is that there's essential unity until the 11th century, well, for one, he's just – you know, I and uh, this is such a historian thing to say, but he's just not reading the history. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but that's the question. We always have this question. We've had this question from the time that Christ came. If it's even because it's even the Jews who follow Christ and the Jews who reject Christ, we always have to say, what do we do with a diversity, and how do we find a unity within diversity, and how do we, you know, I mean, they're just, they're just, there's no easy solution. I mean, actually, this is David Bentley Hart's whole argument about what tradition is. He thinks it's unanswerable. So we, we had Dr. Hart on the podcast and, and his new book, Tradition and Apocalypse. Um, it's it's basically a recognition that there's no way to say like there's no like other than sort of felt intuitions or kind of predispositions, there's no one way to say this is the one and only right tradition from Christ to the end. Um, and so you just have a diversity of responses to um, the unfolding and unveiling that continues to happen between both uh, the incarnation up until the parousia, until the final arrival. And we're just we're just going to constantly respond to, to the revelation, but we won't know definitively. Um, and now, you know, my criticism of heart is that it's essentially insufficiently Christian, uh, in, insufficiently Christological. Um, uh, so it, does, it seems, I'm not sure what unveiling is for him. Um, I, I want to, uh, my intuition is Athanasian or Bartian that it's just Christ. Um, but, um, so anyway, that's one thing to say. <sighs> The for one thing, nobody in, in any of the stuff that we're talking about here, no, nobody was killed. Yes. Um, Theodore of Mopsuestia wasn't Theodore of Mopsuestia wasn't killed. Apollinaris of Laodicea wasn't killed. These people were not killed uh, for the things that they said. Uh, they they may have been ostracized. They may have lost positions of power in some cases. Uh, but but these people were not. Uh, no one was killed over this. So that's a Dan Brown historical. Not, not that Tom said this, but but some people no, think this. Persecuted out of existence. What I meant was that groups. Some of sometimes people were killed and sometimes people were exiled. But the bottom line was is that groups just could not continue to thrive in the environment that they were in. So whatever that meant, whether that meant they left of their own accord or whatever, I just when I say persecuted out of existence, I mean that it was not tolerated to exist within the like like I don't ever remember Aryans being killed. And once upon a time in Roman history, the Arians were the power group. But by the time you get to Theodosius, 
And he does make, I do know he makes laws against Arianism. I don't know if that meant they were killed or whatever, but whatever it was, both politically and civilly or culturally, Arianism had to go to underground to keep existing. And eventually it just kind of petered out. That's yeah. all I meant by so, it. I, I wasn't yeah. referencing so actual killing of anybody per se. But so the other thing that I'll say is like to me, uh, so I teach uh, I teach theology. Um, I, I say that the, uh, I use a, a 17th century uh, definition of theology. Uh, theology is living well for God and speaking well of God. Um, so it's essentially the Catholic vita contemplativa, contemplativa uh, vita activa. Uh, so the active life and the contemplative life. Uh, so whatever we're doing in theology, it is those things like loving the poor. That's theology. Right. There's a sense in which being theological is doing the things that a Christian does. There are also things that mean to be theological that mean to contemplate uh, the, the difficult things. And so, like, there's a sense in which this is all feels like very abstruse and, uh, you know, esoteric and what have you, but or arcane. But wouldn't it have to be? I mean, like, you know, so it's like, it, you know, if our minds are capable of such distinctions, we it would be weird if we thought God wasn't worthy of us using our minds to make such distinctions. Uh, you know, like there's a, there's a sense in which I'm not saying it's required of all creatures. The other thing, I'll use the Bartian definition of theology, which I find helpful. Theology is a second order discipline in some sense as well. The, the, the vita contemplativa, the, the speaking well of God is the second order discipline. What do I mean? Well, the, that, that part of it responds to what one does in the liturgy of the word. Um, and so, you know, when we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, when we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when we uh, worship Jesus Christ as Lord, um, that is God, you know, theology says, okay, those things are true axioms of our faith. Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the gospel. Um, you know, we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, as a contemplative discipline, how do I make sense of that? So it's second order, right? So the faith of the faithful is still true, right? Uh, and so that's why, you know, the words in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit – should always be used in baptism, um, regardless of who says it. <laughs> um, and and th that because that is the faith and that faith is true and that faith is revealed in Matthew 28 and in scripture. Um, and so, so what theology does is try to use our mind to ascend um, and into hard, more, more difficult things. Now, I, I agree with all the, the, the difficulty that this can cause with what happens when we disagree but I actually think one interesting thing about reading Apollinaris and Theodore and Arius is how faithful they thought they were being yeah. <laughs> um, to, to scripture. But, okay, that's my rant in response. Tom, Trevor? <laughs> well, and uh, so, you know, Apollinaris did defend, like, the Nicene version of Christianity as well. It's interesting that of all the – View, or of all the Christianities today that exist, uh, the ones that get labeled Orthodox and the ones that get labeled like pseudo-Christianity or cult-like are essentially the ones that just deny Nicene Christianity, which is kind of interesting when you think about it. But it, so it's it's almost like he he was a defender of the thing that everyone viewed as very important around that time, 
So because he was right on that, he was praised. I just looked at New Advent to see what the, the uh -huh. Catholic encyclopedia would say about him, too. And it did. It said, like, a lot of people around that time did did talk highly of him, like he was a really great person. So it's like he was really looked up to. It's just his view got condemned, like, right before he died. So he did die in condemnation, technically, of his view. But, like, yeah, that I think that's why I'm on this one actually confused because – I just see this as an issue of very, like, especially given the sort of metaphysics I see today in, like, a contemporary analytic philosophical department. I'm like, this is just super technical metaphysics at this point. I mean, I get that I understand the goal, um, given the theological commitments we have, given the things we've already said, so given it's secondary. Um, but yeah, he thought he had that goal. He thought he did assume humanity, um, despite despite him uh, not doing it in the way I guess was desired uh, by everyone else in the church. So I, it's it's sort of like to me, um, it's a question of whether something counts as something. Um, or like, are we using the words this way or that way? And I, so yeah, I don't know. Th this is the first time, I guess I should say, I've just been very, um, I don't know if I've converted any view, but I'm just very, uh, chair. I, I feel a lot of charity toward, toward these, um, toward these heretics, especially Apollinaris. I can kind of see Theodore's view being a little weirder. Um, actually, to be perfectly honest, because it's like, especially when he compares it to like an iron being heated up or whatever. I don't know. I the maybe it was just his analogies, but his analogies threw it off for me. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I I feel a sense of like, okay, that wasn't really that bad. Like, even if that isn't how people decided they wanted to understand this, I think I get what you mean. In your view, you totally, you hit all the marks. You got a human, still God, you got two natures, you, you know, but one person. Uh, and in some sense, in some sense, we get to still like worship the flesh. I think he literally says that phrase. Um, and so in some sense, uh, he's, assu he's assumed humanity because you have a human here now because you got all three parts. So I don't know. I, I at least I'm like, all right, I get there's a sense in which this fully meets all the things that everyone, all his contemporaries said he needed to meet. So I guess that's why I, I was like, huh, this really, this wasn't as crazy as like, whereas we read other heretics and I was just like, yeah, okay, that's, that's heresy. <laughs> I, I think, Trevor, you bring up a really important point that's part of kind of what I was getting at, I think, which is, you know, when you live in a like in a, a faith right you feel a dogmatic constraint you just do where, where that dogmatic constraint tells you don't start thinking outside of this ceiling because this ceiling is not breakable i feel it right i mean i try to engage anti-christian philosophies and 
arguments and things of that nature. I mean, I know I say that very vaguely, but I try to engage him and think through him and try to be fair to him and try to ask myself whether or not, you know, those are legitimate critiques and what have you. But it's really hard for me to get past certain boxes that just felt like, tell me, I have to believe X. So I'm not going to really, really entertain anything beyond X. And I think what you'll find is a lot of the heretics we've read fully submit to the established dogma. And they just don't want to go beyond that. Like, I just think about Arius. Go to Arius and think about what he taught. It really wasn't as radical in his time as we think it is. Now, granted, of course, he is denying, denying the full deity of Christ. But if you really read him in light of Origen, and if you read what Origen wrote, what Arius wrote is very similar to what Origen wrote. So much so that one of the main reasons that we have after the fact or that many after the fact went back and kind of condemned Origen is they were like, oh, he is a little too close to Arius, which means Clement of Alexandria is also a little too close to Arius. And we don't want to condemn him because he's just so solidly set as, you know, an important church father. So it's like Arius, he might have like, veered out of that line. I mean, he did. I think he really did. But he didn't veer out as much as we think he did, given what was acceptable in his time. Now, I think that the Nicenes were right. I, I, I don't, like, I don't think Arius was right. I think they were right in really saying, okay, whoa, 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 we're now going beyond what we should. But I also don't think of Arius as like this malicious, you know, evil guy who like i think he had this dogmatic ceiling which he 100 was going to consent to and then he veered out because because we all those who are thinkers veer out as much as they can because they're trying to understand things yeah you get to theodore of mopsuestia and apollinaris and what you have is you have two people where that dogmatic ceiling has been set at nicaea they're not going to go beyond nicaea but this other bit hasn't been so they're going to start really like saying, okay, what is the nature of this union? And they have no idea that they're doing something that, that is heretical or something like that. And if that ceiling had been set, they wouldn't have violated it. Okay. So I get what you're saying, but I think there is still like a slight difference, which is just that ironically, or at least with Apollinaris, I get the sense that he still does think he would even meet the the neck the bar that ends up being set which is like you got to have uh you know two natures one person i think he still thinks he's like met that bar even i mean that sure. i guess that that's that is the only like slight difference whereas it, at least with you know arius it was pretty clear like what he said is just totally different from obviously but but still like not beyond the pale like not yeah like way outside the the sort of overton window not like beyond the zeitgeist of the time or whatever but so i get that um yeah so i get that sense like i see the analogy there but it does felt like when i read this i was like oh well let's just define human a certain way define assume a certain way we, and we're there we got it with this view oh but you don't like that why oh that doesn't count as assuming why because assuming means something else to you okay well then okay sure but but that i guess is why i was I, I, I don't mean to take issue with the way you said this. I could be wrong. and But you said that Apollinaris fits at least that he's trying to attain something, this level that is what will be set. And the yeah. thing there is what's troubling about or what's difficult about that is 
is like, how can anybody know what will be said? Like, I think well, Arius, Arius, yeah. Arius, I think Arius knew that he was contradicting people who said that Jesus is fully God. But I think Arius did so saying, oh, but look, I've got this whole tradition that backs up what I'm saying. And I think Arius felt comfortable saying Jesus is God, lowercase g in this one sense. And this is something we have to ask out. I don't think he could have known that the Council of Nicaea would just say, no, we're drawing a line in the sand. And this view, which you're putting, which you think is really consistent with what Origen said, um, is not going to be acceptable to the point that we're not even going to accept what Origen writes on on the Trinity anymore. I don't think he could have anticipated that. So, I mean, yeah. you are yeah. right. And I see how you're right in that sense, but I don't see how that would change the nature of that person, like in terms of, no. like, I mean, because that's really an anticipatory thing. I'm not judging. Uh, I'm not judging any of these people to be yeah. in that in that way. I just meant I feel more charity here, in the sense that, um, he, you know, he like, he was alive while this whole thing was being discussed, so he saw all the disagreements like in front in front of his face, and I would think that it this this is like I'm not the historian, so a real historian should actually. It just reads to me as if like he's talking to people who disagree with him and he's going, no, I'm saying what you're saying. That's how it feels. It feels more uh, like I'm saying what you're saying kind of thing with the contemporaries because he gets like I said, he get, I just read it like he does get condemned before his death. So he knows about it or his view does. Apparently, no one ever said his actual name in their condemnations like they didn't attribute this view to his name, I guess, uh, like while he was alive. But um. So maybe they respected him that much. I'm not really sure. But like, so to me, I just, uh, I don't know, in that way. Uh, whereas like, yeah, I read the words. I'm not judging any of these people as people. Like I would think Arius is probably a great uh, and person who viewed himself as a, a devout Christian. Mm -hmm. So in that way, I'm judging them both the same. I just had even more charity given what mm -hmm. I know now coming from the future, looking back on it. I'm like, I could see how this person actually thought that, you know, given the talk of the time that he did meet the, the conditions. Yeah. That's, I see that. yeah. So what, one thing, all right, here's my last chance to condemn Apollinaris. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love how, you know, what's funny really quickly is how Chad, like when I first met you, man, you were like, you were open to everything, but now you're the guy who wants to condemn everybody. <laughs> I'm just, I, well, I'm kind of kidding. Well, I, so I, I guess I want, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of things that could be said about personal changes in my own life. Um, I know, I'm just, I, I'm just messing, I just think it's a funny irony. I, I was the guy who wanted uh, to condemn everybody you wanted to. <laughs> it's true. Um, so, but, he, okay, so on, on page 10945, Apollinaris says, um, be or well 42 even behold the pre-existed equality of the same jesus christ with his father his subsequently acquired likeness to human beings mm -hmm. and what more surely than this shows that he is not one together with another complete god together with complete man he is and then the next one 45 he is not a human being but is like a human being since he is not co-essential with humanity in his highest part so yeah 
the the re I mean to my mind well one he starts talking about mingling which becomes anathema and he doesn't know that right the the whole idea of not mingling divine and human he has no idea that that's going to become a problem because he very flatly celebrates it early on <laughs> uh, um, yeah. and and so yeah so that would be a kind of ceiling that he didn't know uh, he was supposed to to avoid right. but he should know better than to say that Jesus. Uh, to, well, I don't know. Maybe he shouldn't know better. Maybe he shouldn't. Here's what I'll say: that what Cyril of Alexandria, what Athanasius uh, of Alexandria will also say: it's not that Jesus is anyway like a human being. Jesus just is what it means to be human. So it's not so. So to some extent, I ask the question. I like. I think like when you teach this, you should have people think about their intuitions about what it is to be human and what it is to be God. And you start, but but for what people normally do, and what you do with that exercise is you think about us. Um, you think about me and Trevor and Tom and the humans that we know, and think about what does it mean for us to be humans. There's an extent to which what Athanasius and what Cyril would say is, in order to understand what it means to be human, you look to Jesus. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, so the perfect definition of human isn't. Uh, our humanity it is the humanity of jesus um so it's not a likeness to our humanity it's our humanity should be brought into a likeness of christ's humanity but then to um, defend him then it could just be then against yeah that's right it could be the other it could be the other way it could be the other way fair enough but i so i yeah. like the intuition i like the intuition though that says there's an extent to which we should rightly say all of us are lacking um, in our own humanity, um, and it, it is an imitation of Christ. It is being uh, brought up into the life of Christ. That's what brings us into the fullness of humanity, um, right. and and so that we're all deficient in some sense, and that it's only Christ who is not deficient. Um, yeah, and that could be. We could take that view, and then yeah, still make it consistent with this metaphysics. Yeah, that's like, that. Well, so I'll. I mean, I was kind of condemning him, <laughs> but actually, it's sort of. It's actually it's sort of interesting though, just as a point that we'll see going forward. Cyril of Alexandria unconsciously uh, utilizes Apollinaris in his defense of orthodoxy. Um, so the 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 phrase hypostatic union, which becomes the definition of orthodoxy, whose phrase is that? Apollinaris's. Oh. I didn't read that. Did he use that in our reading? No, he doesn't. He doesn't use it in here, but it comes out in the debates because um, actually Theodoret of Cyrus, who I've done a little bit of work on, he he does not want to say hypostatic union because he says, "Don't you know, Cyril, <laughs> uh, that 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 is actually Apollinaris's phrase? You use the heretic, uh, and Cyril takes the day, right? A lot of people kind of." will will sideline Theodoret. Uh, but it's sort of another interesting feature of these debates. Theodoret calls out Cyrus, uh, 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 calls out Cyril and says, tisk tisk tisk, uh, you cannot use a heretic to generate orthodoxy. Uh, uh -huh. and, and and that's actually what kind of takes the day. Um, so yeah, so I mean, I, I actually do wonder if some of these intuitions, even about Apollinaris, are really Cyrillian, um, like where Cyril looks at this and says, I think he's got a lot going for him. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. By the way, I just want to clarify, I do hold to the definition of Chalcedon and pretty unabashedly. I I did just find Apollinaris, you know, a little interesting and compelling. Um, one thing I'd like, I, I only got about 20 minutes before I got to go. Yeah. One thing I would like to 
uh, address really quickly because, and, and I, I don't know, cause we've kind of just cursorily said this, but for our listeners sake, like, I, I feel like right now we're in the weeds regarding the theological debates that are going to really set, that are going to really be wrestled through at the council of Ephesus in 431 and the council of Chalcedon in 451. And I know Ephesus, their big concern was to kind of repudiate, I think, Nestorius on the issue of whether or not Mary is properly called the God-bearer or Theotokos. And by the way, this isn't really a question of Mary. It's a question of Jesus, because the question is, is when Jesus is in Mary's womb, what is his nature? And my understanding is Nestorius said that you that you could call Mary the Christ-bearer, but not the God-bearer. And I think that has something to do with this union of the two natures or whatever term he used um, that almost is kind of like Theodore's view, Theodore of Mopsuestia, uh, this view that you have God, the Logos, and you have the man Jesus being united. And that it's like, what was in Mary's womb was the man Jesus, not God, the Logos. But I find it interesting because Theodore of Mopsuestia clearly is okay with the term the, with the term Theotokos, which is going to be the or God bearer, which is going to be the big debate, right? So really quickly, just turn to uh, it's on page one twenty one, and it's uh, in his section on the incarnation, book twelve, fragment eleven, and it says, "Let no one be deceived by the artfulness of their questions. It is disgraceful, as the apostle says, to set aside so great a cloud of witnesses and deceived by clever questions." to be joined with the party of our opponents. What is it they artfully ask? Is Mary a man's mother or God's mother? And then who was crucified, God or a man? But the solution of these puzzles is clear even from our previous answers to their questions. Nevertheless, let us right now say what ought to be said summarily by way of reply. Next paragraph. When they ask whether Mary is man's mother or God's mother, we must say both. The one by the nature of the thing the other in virtue of the relation. Mary was a man's mother by nature, since what was in her womb was a man, just as it was also a man who came forth from her womb. But she is God's mother, since God was in the man who was fashioned. So it's interesting. I just find that interesting because I know that that fight in Ephesus is really about what is the nature of Jesus in the womb and Theodore. And I don't know how Nestorius would have replied to this, but Theodore seems comfortable saying that the baby Jesus was also God in the womb as well. I don't know. What do you think? Hmm. Um, I think we do need to stay that for another podcast. But, um, <laughs> um, yeah, well, because there's some thought about whether or not when Astorius causes this controversy, whether or not he well, does he do it on purpose? Um, so, you know, it could just be a kind of it may whether or not it satisfies this intuition from the so-called school, the Antiochian school that he's a part of, um, or whether or not it's just a kind of um, trying to drop a bomb on the uh, in Constantinople when he preaches the first sermon where he tries to switch this phrasing, um, you know, whether or not it really satisfies these intuitions. I'm not sure. Uh, but, but, but a lot of people think that he was basically just trying to cause a stir. Really? Yeah. Interesting. I, so 
I I mean I don't I don't want to take up the final thing we talk about, but then I just I would like it. I just think it would be nice because it'd be a clear bookend. What was exactly the metaphysics of how the Orthodox view got flushed out? Because obviously now what they want to say against um, Apollinaris is something like you have a full human and thus even the immaterial part is human. Um, but what's the, so then how does that part get to be the same person as the logos? Um, it's the hypostatic union that becomes the center of that, that becomes the, the means by which we can predicate on Jesus the person, the things of the second person of the Trinity. So the hypostatic union is the metaphysical conception that says we have a kind of singularity within two things. Uh, and 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 that or within one united thing. Um, but but yeah, so it's a you know one person, two natures uh, is possible. Uh, by the hypostatic union um, that is the solution that says uh wh whatever wh whatever is going on here you know we can so it's like uh yeah i mean that but that's it so i don't i don't exactly i mean what is a hypostatic union uh, i don't know um okay. it is a <laughs> um i like it's a tertium well, quid it's, it's a tertium yeah. quid there are no that, other hypostatic unions, as far as I'm aware, right? Um, Uh-oh. Yeah, this, see, this is exactly what I'm talking about, is the, uh, this is why, to me, this one is so, like, hair-splitting, because I'm like, well, how, anyway, we don't have to get into it. The Trial of Apollinaris uh, is what we should call this episode, though. And, yes, okay. and, and we need to. Like we need to spend some more attention on Nestorius, and I'd like to do a little bit more on Theodore because I'm really I really struggle to distinguish Theodore. So here's what I would say: Apollinarius, I read him, I'm like, wow, good arguments. I'm very sympathetic. Theodore, Theodore of Mopsuestia, and I haven't read Nestorius, so I need to read some of his stuff. But I have read descriptions of Nestorius, and I go, don't like it. Doesn't make sense. But it's hard for me to distinguish what they believe from the definition of Chalcedon and the hypostatic union. I'm like, because, I mean, my big problem with them, which I imagine is what, you know, was the problem in their day, is the way they describe the second person of the Trinity as if he's a second being different from Jesus. That's what I don't like. But but then they'll make the necessary qualifiers to make it sound like theologically they're very much in line with what we believe now, you know? I, well, I would well, be... what, what... Oh, sorry, go. Uh, we, could, we could close with this. Um, so I called theology the vita contemplativa, the, the contemplative life. This is one question that I always had. Uh, so there's, there's an extent to which this is meant to be a it's meant to be a kind of spiritual consideration and like uh so uh what would it mean to say that um the kind of insights required to uh, sort of attain to orthodoxy or something uh 
you know, like not everyone. Well, how do how do I want to say this? Like, it's almost a, like do, do you think that you could you could go through all of this study, um, without having a sort of I don't know an active devotional life? Like impiously, can you impiously dissect all the arguments um, and come to an orthodox conclusion? Um, like that might be how they would say it. So for all of them, uh, every like when you interpret scripture, when you read scripture, there's an assumed sort of yeah, pious, spiritual, like religious uh thing that's supposed to be going on. Like you're supposed to be moved by the spirit to understand these things. Um, it is only you know, it's like the th like you know, you think of Jesus in the parables. He who has ears, let him hear. Um, and so do you find this to be the kind of like, what, what would it mean to have this conversation about the Trinity outside of sort of the, to use the, the, the common phrase, a lived spirituality? Does, does that impinge upon what one thinks about these things in your mind? Hmm. Hadn't thought of it that way. <laughs> Um, I can only also I can only barely hear you. I think you might be covering your microphone. Oh, rephrase the question for me. Yeah. So like if I if I'm a, an avowed atheist um, and I read this stuff that we just read. Do I come to the same conclusions if I'm an avowed Christian who's praying uh, daily, reading the scriptures daily and going to church as I read them? Are the conclusions different? Uh, are the like like w to what extent does my spiritual life uh, make me more ready to accept these things or give me insights or something? I don't know. Does does your does your sort of spiritual life change how you read and think about the nature of God? Well, I would think so. I mean, I would think of it like if I were to read like a Muslim theology of some kind or Hindu theology, I would be coming as a third party observer. And my goal is to, is, is mostly just to understand what this group of people believe as accurately as I can. But in doing, I would, I, but, but I'm not looking at it as a guide to what is true. Right. And I would imagine that that would be true with an atheist looking at Christian theology. They might, be interested for some reason in understanding what Christians believe as kind of like a, an observational practice in some sense. And so then their goal would be to have the most, uh, just kind of the most clear understanding of what has been taught, but they don't look at it as like a guide, uh, towards truth. Right. Whereas if I come into it and I'm like, wait a minute, I believe in the scriptures that these people are wrestling through. And my goal is actually to know where these scriptures are leading me. Then I look to these guys for act as actual guides, right? Well, yeah. yeah and, and furthermore, like, yeah, I seek a relationship and love this, you know, God. So I'm, I'm also trying to like be, um, I guess respectful is one word, but it's like more than that. Reverent, I guess. I'm trying to, yeah, I'm trying to revere the right thing. I, because to me, like the whole 
Uh, the only reason I even care about Christology is because we worship Christ. Like, we're, we're, it's really weird once you think about it. It's like, oh, we worship a person. Like, <laughs> we fully worship a person all the time. And so I'm like, okay, like, I pray to a person um, who was once like a human who actually walked on the earth. That's a pretty big deal. That's kind of totally opposite of, you know, the, Ju the Jewish faith that we sort of have our history in. So it's sort of... To me, it's like it. You know, we need a pretty good explanation of why we're going to do such things if we're going to if we're going to do them. And so, yeah, I I approach it that way. Whereas, yeah, of course, like a someone just coming out from the outside would be like, it's not going to affect how they live their life. But like, I would if I was not convinced that Christ was God, I wouldn't worship Christ at church. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I guess that that would be. That definitely affects why I'm willing to accept certain things. But that is also why I've come away like more confused about Paul and Aristide, because I'm like, well, he definitely has got on this view. <laughs> he's got that part. <laughs> so so he's got the thing that I really care about. Um uh doesn't make me like irreverent. I'm not like worshiping a human any or I am, but yeah, but not like anyway, you get what I'm trying to say. It's like it's not uh it's not committing me to like some sort of crazy um behavior i guess like oh you guys are just worshiping like this mere man that walked around um yeah because i guess i have that intuition he wasn't only a man like that that is the thing he just wasn't he was special <laughs> obviously he was special yeah. anyway yeah. i don't know yeah, I think I think the same things you do. I don't know. It's just it, they're they're just like when you read these guys, they do they they often have sort of something about you know like your uh like well it's a progression, right? So like there's an extent to which like for origin and like they talk about like uh uh like you could be a neophyte, you could be a, a new Christian, a simple one, and you you are on your way towards perfection towards completion um and so some of this stuff is a an inherent part of sort of becoming fully um well become fully part of the divine life i guess um but yeah so i don't know like it, you know some people might say these are just sort of like academic distinctions um and and things like that but there's also such which like for them it's there's a whole posture of uh yeah of, of of piety of reverence of of some of these kind of words um that i don't know just it's just an interesting thought like you know i could see why someone might think well this is just like you know do you understand the the inner workings of the internal combustion engine um well we could talk about all the features of that whether or not we trust i don't know uh <laughs> the way that a car works but somehow we think that what we're doing is a little different than just like, I don't care how the internal combustion is functions. Um, I just drive it. It's um, it's to me, it's almost more like, uh, like Tom and I could argue about who Tom Bombadil was with, <laughs> within the, yeah, there you go. Not that we ever have, I don't yeah. know why I came up with that. I don't, I don't even have a set view on who Tom. Well, because he's was. not in the I, movie, I, so I, you have to talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the point is, like, you know, I just read the Silmarillion like last year, so it's like I now have all these opinions about the Tolkien world, and we could argue about it. But at the end of the day, it's like, uh, whereas, yeah, this there's a sense in which, of course, yeah, I find 
there, there, there's like obviously no truth in some sense to who Tom Bombadil was, where in the sense there is. So yeah, that kind of going back to what Tom said, it, it definitely affects uh, how I want to talk about it and whether or not we even share like some base level commitments. Because like the difference to me, me talking to like Tom about Apollinaris versus like obviously talking to like a Mormon. Where it's like a totally different understanding of God. Yeah. It's just we, we wouldn't even have a common language to start. Uh, we wouldn't even have the same uh, areas in which we are trying to be reverent to start off with. So, yeah. Yeah.